All right, so we are in Esther, and I'm going to begin at the end of chapter 4 and uh, go over some things we ended on last week. Uh, Again, I'm going to read through the end of chapter 4 into uh, till the end of chapter 5. I'm going to begin here in verse 14 of chapter 4. For if you remain silent at this time, this is Mordecai speaking to Esther, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. Now it came about on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's rooms. And the king was sitting on his royal throne in the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. When the king saw Esther, the queen, standing in the court, she obtained favor in his sight. And the king extended to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. So Esther came near and touched the top of the scepter. Then the king said to her, what is troubling you, Queen Esther? And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be given to you. Esther said, If it pleases the king, may the king and Haman come this day to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that we may do as Esther desires. So the king and Haman came to the banquet which Esther had prepared. As they drank their wine at the banquet, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? For it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom it shall be done. So Esther replied, My petition and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and do what I request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king says. Then Haman went out that day glad and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself, however, went to his house and sent forth, uh, sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Then Haman recounted to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, and every instance where the king had magnified him, and how he had promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Haman also said, Even Esther the queen, let no one but me come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king." Yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. And the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows made. So at the end of chapter 4, we came to... kind of the start of the climax of the book, right? We've been building up to this point. The law was passed that at the end of this period of time and in the the 12th month, that all of the Jews are gonna be slaughtered by the people. And if you want, you can take all their stuff, right? And so this law is passed, everyone's mourning. Mordecai says, Esther, you need to do something about this. And that's what we read at the end of of, of chapter four. Uh, beginning in verse 14. 
Last class, I, I think I may have over-implied something. We don't know the status of Mordecai's faith. It seems that, you know, Mordecai here is, is in mourning, right? He's in sackcloth and ashes. He's fasting. All the other Jews and all the other provinces are doing the same thing. But we don't know what Mordecai believes about God. It's not mentioned here anywhere. Esther is a very unique book because although it seems like it occurs during a similar time period that we see in the book of Daniel, it's a very different situation and it's written in a very different way. When we think about Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, it's repeated over and over and over again how they believe in God. They follow God. They will not dis, uh, They will not put aside God's law, right? They won't save themselves from the king's judgment or from, you know, or, uh, you know, con- contaminate themselves with the king's food that they're not uh, supposed to eat according to the law, right? That's very clearly documented in the book of Daniel. We don't have anything said in the book of Esther about Mordecai and Esther's faith. There's nothing said about what they believe about God. What I was saying last class is that there's some assumptions that we could maybe draw from the fact that they are fasting, but ultimately, we do not know. And that makes this book quite unique, right? It's not very often, and I think this is partly why, we read the book of Esther and we would say, are Esther and Mordecai good people? Are they good Jews following God? You know, if you had asked me before this study for this class, I probably would have said, oh yeah, Esther's great. Mordecai's great, right? She, she went before the king. She could have died. Sure, that may be the case, but we don't really know. And I bring all that up to say we need to be careful, right? We have to be careful because Esther and Mordecai are just like us, right? Do I know anything about your faith if I just see you going around in your life? I could know some things about your faith, right? I could, I could see, oh, yeah, you go to church. That's great. You don't seem to use bad language when I'm around you. That's, that's good, right? You don't just lose your temper randomly, as far as I can tell, right? But there's a lot of things I don't know about everybody here, unless I ask them. And then I only know if they tell me, right? So that puts Esther in a very unique place as far as the, the written word that we have. We don't see too often these characters, these individuals, where we don't have outside commentary telling us things as far as, You know, this person was pleasing to God, or this person's quoting from the law, or they're following the law, right? We we don't see that here. We see a request to fast, and we see a request from Mordecai that if you read it a certain way, maybe is just saying Mordecai believes that the nation of the Jews cannot be defeated. Maybe it doesn't have anything to do with God. Maybe it's just the Jewish nation has been around forever. And we will be around forever. Right? We will be saved. Okay, how? He doesn't say. So we just have to be careful. Alan. 
That's an interesting point that you bring up because we don't know much about them, like you said, other than these few chapters and not a lot of character development on, on their part where we see seem do some things. One thing we do know about them is they are not part of the remnant. The remnant's already gone and left and right. back home, so to speak. So in some ways, this book is is inter- interestingly, maybe not even about the Jews in, a, in an odd sense, but about even though the, God said there would be a remnant and he is doing that and he's protecting those people, he still has not forgotten about the others, the ones that could have just been left in yeah. these other lands. He could have kept the remnant, but God is still loving to those others as well and doesn't want them to perish also. And there's a, there's a big lesson there for us too. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm not, I don't plan to spend an entire class period on this point because again, I think you could, you could make points either way. You could convince me based on the, the text here that Mordecai has some knowledge of the law and is possibly following parts of the law at least. Maybe he has some idea of God and God's protection of the, of the Jews. You could also say he doesn't say it anywhere here where Daniel says, you know, you can do what you want, King. God, I, I'm not going to, you know, disobey God, right? That's very clear when Daniel says that to the king, right? God gave me the interpretation of this vision and here's what it means, right? Okay, God is with Daniel. So we, we know some things about that. You don't see that here with Esther and Mordecai. But does it even matter? Right? We know God uses individuals, whether they believe and obey him or not, to enact his purpose. And I think this book, in particular, is showing God working through normal human individuals, right? Regular human people, no supernatural thing is occurring here. No visions are coming to individuals. This is just God working through the, the choices of men to enact a promise that he gave to Isaiah of preserving the remnant, right? They are going to wipe out the entire, entire population of Jews if something doesn't happen here with, with Haman and his law. And so Esther is the story of how God fulfills his promise in Isaiah, right? How's that remnant going to stay okay when Daniel's gone, Daniel's not in the picture anymore, right? Before, when we had Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon in the early days of the, the Persian Empire, you had Daniel who was there and who helped protect the people, right? There's multiple times in the book of Daniel that you see that these various kings put in laws based on Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's, uh, you know, based on their actions that protect the Jews, and just based on their own system of government, those laws are in effect until that nation's no more, right? They're, they're in effect and they can't be changed. Um, and so, you know, I think it, Esther is a very unique book in that it, it shows us, you know, how would this work today? How does God preserve his people today? Through regular people's actions, Right? There is no supernatural intervention, no army of angels that comes down and protects his people or removes the problem. It's through just the everyday working and choices of men. 
And that is incredibly powerful when you think about it, right? It's very powerful to have an army of angels show up just because you snap your fingers and you say that can happen, right? But is it not kind of more powerful when the things that are occurring are not even like, like the choices that are being made aren't being consciously made to lead into any specific outcome as far as those people know, right? I mean, you think about the book of Esther. There's things coming up that we're going to get to next chapter where events happened, you know, Mordecai saved the king from assassination and that's going to go a certain way. But he didn't save the king from assassination to put a, a little favor in his pocket so he could pull it up later, right? But all these different events fall into place to lead us to the outcome that we have. And that's the God that we serve, a God that is divinely powerful, right? We don't know the faith of Esther, you know, same as we don't know about Mordecai. Obviously, Esther has enough faith to do this very difficult thing of going before the king and risking her life to get this done. But does she do it because she's serving God or does she do it to save the Jews? We don't know. It doesn't say. She does it because Mordecai asked her to. And so far, she's followed his advice, right? She tells him how difficult it will be, but she says, I will do this. And if I perish, I perish. But you're right. I am put in this position. I will do it. Okay. I'm going to ask my question again. Can we learn a lesson from that in Esther, whether she's doing it for God or doing it for the Jews? I think you can learn a lesson either way because regardless of the motives, which we don't know, it is the proper action. And we can learn from that, right? Doing the hard thing no matter the risk because it's the right thing to do, right? Good and bad people do that all the time. And I think sometimes we tend to categorize individuals that we know who are faithful as like they're in this good box and then the people who are unfaithful are in this bad box. And so we don't learn lessons from Ahab because he's bad and we don't learn lessons from Jezebel because she's bad, right? What we learn is don't be like those people. Sure. But there are some people that were bad that enacted God's commands. I mean, I think about Jehu, right? Jehu was a king who killed a whole lot of people in very bad ways. But in 1 Kings chapter 16, that's exactly what God told Elijah. Jehu's going to come, and the ones that are against me, he will kill, right? He does it through deceit. He does it through deception. He lies all the time. He's basically an assassin. But he still fulfills the will of God. I just think it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> okay. God knows those who are his and will preserve his remnant. That, going back to that, uh, that idea of 1 Kings chapter 19. Sorry, it's 19, not 16. 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah says, I'm the only one left at that point, right? I'm the only one left. And so I'm running. It's terrible. Everything's awful. Just take me away now. 
I'm done, right? I'm the only one left. What does God say? How many are left? Seven thousand, right? Seven thousand have not bowed the knee to Baal. Elijah, you're not. You're not alone. Now, seven thousand in the population of Israel at that time is not a lot, right? You're talking about millions of people. Seven thousand is not a lot. It's a drop in the bucket. But you're not alone, right? Those seven thousand mean something. And they're known by God, right? Elijah doesn't know them. You know, he says he's the only one left. He doesn't think anybody out there is following God. Because from his perspective, everybody he's dealing with is worshiping Baal, right? That's what he's faced with over and over and over again. He's not sent to the ones that are following God, right? Of course, that kind of makes sense in his job as a prophet. He's going to the ones that are not to tell them to repent. But... He doesn't know. I think we can find ourselves in very similar situations where, you know, you go to Walmart and you see nothing but immorality. It's hard to see. You have to keep your eyes in very specific places because of the people that don't have clothes on for some reason. And sometimes it feels like in this world that we're alone. But I'm not alone. I have all my brethren here, right? Very small percentage of the population of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, but I am not alone. And God knows all the ones here. And God follows through on his promises, right? That idea of the remnant will be preserved, and it will be preserved the way that God has planned it to be preserved, using the individuals that God has planned to use in the way that he has planned to use them. And in this case... It is a man named Mordecai and a woman named Esther who do some hard things. But they ultimately end up saving the the nation of Israel at this time, right, from this law. Okay, Esther prepares herself to make this right choice. Last class we ended with the idea that if you're going to do that, if you're going to do hard things, Put yourself in the best position possible to do those things, right? So if you struggle, you know, doing something, you want to make sure that you are best prepared to to get that done, right? That you don't give yourself opportunities to make an excuse. Oh, well, you know, I really need to do this, but uh, I don't know. My throat's a little scratchy today. I probably don't need to. You know what? I should probably wait. I should wait till I'm feeling better. Um, you know, oh, I really need to have a very difficult conversation with someone, maybe. I need to repent of something. I need to forgive somebody. I need to confront someone of their sin. But now is a time that I could and that I plan to do it, but that seems really hard, and oh, you know what? I forgot to do this other thing. I should probably go do that first, right? We, we kind of tend to do that with difficult things, right? They, they get put off. They get put on the back burner because they're hard. Put yourself in the best possible position to get them done. Do what you need to do to make it easy, right? And if you know that you struggle with something, don't put yourself in a place 
where you're going to struggle with that, right? Like I said last class, if you struggle getting to services on Sunday evenings because you take a nap on Sunday evening, and when you wake up from that nap, you just feel really terrible. Stop taking the nap, right? You don't have to have it. It's what, two hours, maybe? That's a long nap. But you could, I mean, we're getting out of services even earlier now with the time change. You can go to bed early, right? Get that extra two hours, sure. But if it keeps you from being here, give it up. It's not worth it, right? Put yourself in the best possible position. Yes, Brian. You mentioned earlier there's a lot that we don't know about Esther and Mordecai, but I do think it's very interesting that when they wanted to put themselves in the best possible position to do this, what did they choose to do? Yeah. They chose to fast. Yeah. And if you look at, you know, most of the examples we find in the Bible, individuals are fasting not because they just want to be really, really hungry or they want to weaken themselves physically, sure. but the whole point of fasting is to draw themselves closer to God to remove those physical things. And so, again, ambiguity aside, I do think it says something about both of them that this is the method. You know, they, they, don't, they don't choose to go have a big meal. They don't choose to, like, get together and, you know, confer about it. They say, if we want to put ourselves in the best possible position, we are going to fast and eliminate these distractions of the world to hopefully grow closer, uh, at least in my mind, it's pretty clear, to God. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right. I think in this, in this case, it does, it does tend to point its way towards some kind of religious significance with the fasting, that they are, you know, trying, they're, they're being more spiritually minded. I just don't think we, there's a lot of things in this book that Esther and Mordecai are in and around and are involved in that we know are not good, right? Esther is taken to the king before she's married, and it's implied strongly that there is sex involved. And a normal Jew, we would say that's, that's not what you want to do, right? That's not, you want to be married before you have these relations, right? That's very clear in the scriptures. There's a whole lot of drinking going on in this book. Esther is going to hold these feasts that's going to have drinking involved, right? And it's alcohol being, you know, she's the one providing it. And so there's a lot of nuances to that because I think, again, you're dealing with, with nuanced people, right? Does Esther believe in God? I can't say because it doesn't say specifically, I believe she does because of the request to fast. You're right. That has some significant religious implications. I mean, we see that is exactly what the children of Nineveh do or what the people of Nineveh do as well when they're confronted with their sin, right, is they repent uh, and they fast in sackcloth and ashes. So I just think that, you know, these characters are very nuanced. I think they have a lot going on there like we all do right? As far as, you know, the things that we get right and the things that we don't so much. Um, But yeah, I think you're right. I think that does point to at this time in their need, that's where they go. And that's significant. We, We should do the same thing, right? At our times of need, do we run to people of men with man's wisdom or do we go to God and God's wisdom, right? And, and we need to choose God. Yeah, good point. Any other comments? Okay. So chapter five, Esther is now ready to go before the king. 
This is the first hurdle, right? The law is if you go in the presence of the king and he does not extend his scepter to you, you're dead. That's it, right? That's your chance. You don't get to talk to the king. Nothing like that happens. If you go before the king and he does not extend the scepter, you're done. So here we go, right? This is the first hurdle. And so she dresses in her royal robes. She stands in the inner court. And you have to be thinking she's having a little bit of a panic attack in the middle, right? I mean, this is the moment, right? Okay, here we go. We got to do it. Okay. And the king is pleased with Esther. Sure. I mean, what we know about this king is that he's crazy, right? He shows favor to somebody one moment and then has his son cut in half and divided in between the path as his army marches between the two pieces, the next. Um, He whips the ocean because it dared to have a storm. He throws shackles on it because how dare you rebel against me? Um, I mean, he's, 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 yeah, he's kind of crazy. Um, and so is it likely that he would, he would let Esther come? I, I don't think you could say that 100%. Esther knows that this is dangerous, right, what she's doing. Because this guy is, is very obsessed with himself, very obsessed with the rule of law as he would see it done. And anything that could be seen as sedition or rebelling against his will, he will cut it off and get rid of it, right? Um, but he allows Esther to come. And then he does as as Ahasuerus seems to do. He makes these grand offers at a a gift, right? What is your request? Up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you, right? And Esther's request is not up to half the kingdom. What's her request? Come to my banquet with Haman, right? I want you and I want Haman to come to this banquet that I prepared. Now, Why doesn't she ask about the law? I mean, that's really the main goal, right? The main goal is to get this law done. She's passed the first hurdle. She came before the king and he didn't have her killed. So I would think in my mind that the next logical step would be, uh, yeah, there's this law and it's going to kill me and and all of my nation. And it'd be great if we, if we didn't do that, right? That would, that would be great. We don't know why. But obviously, when you're dealing with the emperor of a, wor- of a world power, there's kind of a protocol that you would want to go through, right? You don't just jump right into the thing. Put him in the best mood possible. And with Ahasuerus, how do you put him in the best mood possible? Well, you have a, a banquet, right? We know that from the first two chapters of the book, where he's having these banquets that last 180 days, seven more days, um, right? He likes the parties, Um, And so the king and Haman come to the banquet. Does this passage allow us to say that drinking should be fine as long as no one gets drunk? Because it doesn't say anybody got drunk here. Just says there's drink that's served. Could you use this passage to say that? Yeah, yeah, banqueting's forbidden. Not, we're, we're not told that here, but it's forbidden other places, right? Forbidden other places. So you can't take this passage in its context 
and use it outside of its context to try and justify your own actions for things, right? I bring that up because, I mean, we all know that's what people do, right? That's what people do. They want to take passages like this where someone who, you know, people generally believe is following God has, is bringing forth this drink to the king. So what is that? That must mean it must be okay in certain circumstances. And it must be okay at certain times, maybe with the right kind of crowd or whatever. Um, not all the time, maybe, but, you know, Esther's doing it this one time, so maybe it's okay. No, right? No, we don't, we don't see that other places, right? There's other passages that condemn that type of actions, those type of actions that condemn drunkenness. And so as Christians, we have to follow the whole letter of the law, right? We follow the whole thing, not just bits and pieces that we want to take out to justify whatever we want to do. So you cannot use it in its context to prove anything, right? The scripture does not condone Esther's actions in serving this drink and banqueting to the king and Haman. It's just giving you a record of what happened, right? Just a record of what happened. So the king comes, Haman comes. They're at the banquet and the king uh, asks Esther again, what's troubling you? What's your request up to half the kingdom, right? What's your petition? It shall be granted. And Esther says that her petition and her request is very simple. She wants the king and Haman to come to a banquet tomorrow. And then she'll make her request, right? That seems strange to me. I'm not in that culture, but that seems odd to me. I mean, we've already removed ourselves from the throne room. We are now in a more private setting with the individual who's kind of, you know, involved in what we're dealing with here. But we're not making our request right now with the king and with Haman. We are waiting to the next day to make that request. Why? Maybe, yeah. Maybe she knows the character of Haman. Maybe she knows that, you know, if I get enough opportunities in here with the king and with Haman, that he's just going to, you know, dig his own grave here. Yeah, maybe that's the case. What I know for sure is that in reading this book, that's what happens, right? I know for sure that's what happens. So maybe it's not Esther who knows that. Maybe it's God who knows that. And maybe this is something that's happening because God wills. I don't know that for sure. It doesn't say. But I know that there's a lot of instances where things just happen to line up in a way for a lot of dramatic irony, right, that we like to see. Um, For things to happen in such a way where Haman's going to bury himself in in trouble here. And part of that is is here, just with this one decision of... Well, Esther, Queen Esther, what is your request? And I will grant it right now. That seems like a great opportunity, right? He's already satisfied with the banquet. He says he's going to grant your petition. If you make that petition, maybe it's going to happen. But Esther says, just, you know, I want you to come to another banquet. And he says, okay, yeah, sounds good. We'll do it. 
Brother Bruce. And as we've already seen, Haman is a very conceited, uh, speaking without seeing the consequences, kind of like Peter. He speaks impulsively, and his anger is so uh, great because someone has done great harm to his his pride that sure, surely God is controlling in this, but also I th- I think also that he may not know that Queen Esther is a Jew. Oh, yeah. And so uh, her knowing that he doesn't know, uh, she's laying the perfect trap for him uh, through God's will or through her uh, advice from uh, Mordecai. But it just it just seems like the perfect trap for one who is whose character is as Haman it is. It's true. Yeah, I mean, Esther is very, uh, you know, calculated through the advice that Mordecai gives her to not reveal her her nationality, not reveal that she's a Jew, and she doesn't reveal it here either, right? I mean, everything is just, Esther kind of, it seems like, you know, as we see from Haman here on down, that, you know, Haman thinks this is a big deal, right? It's a big deal to be invited with a private audience with the king and queen. That's a very important, prestigious thing that nobody else was invited to but Haman, right? And so, yeah, that builds him up just to let him, like, when she makes the reveal, he, he has that much further to fall, right? Um, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Before we get there, Mordecai's... Uh, not Mordecai, Haman is on a high, right? He just finished this feast with the king and the queen. He's going to go to another feast the next day, and everything's great until what? Mordecai, right? Mordecai. Um, you know, it's okay to find these things funny. It is funny. Right? It's funny. In the movie, we would laugh at that, right? He looks, there's Mordecai, right? Um, but this time, I think it's interesting. Before, he didn't like Mordecai because he didn't bow down or pay homage. That was chapter three. He's not bowing down, he's not paying homage. Now, what are we mad about? Now, he's not standing up or trembling. Mordecai, right? He's not, he's not bowing down. He's not paying homage. He's not standing up. He's not trembling. I mean, at this point, I would be like, what, what do you want him to do? I mean, you're saying you want him to bow down. Apparently, you just want him to do something, right? Do something to show me some kind of respect, something different than what you're doing, which is nothing, right? But this makes him angry. So what does he do? What kind of person is, is Haman with his anger? Does he lash out? He clocks him. No, that's not what he does, right? It says he controls his anger, right? Haman controlled himself, verse 10. Went to his house, called for his friends and his wife. And then he unloads on his friends and his wife, right? Haman is not one who lashes out in his anger, right? There's a lot of individuals that do that. When they get enraged, they lash out. And, you know, like I said, last class period in listening to all the true crime podcasts, right? That's a thing that people who are violent do. But there's an even scarier thing sometimes, which is the people that don't do that. The people that get really, really angry 
and they bottle it up and they hold on to it and they sit with it for years until they unleash it later on, right? Haman controls his anger. I mean, that's what we're, we're told to do in Ephesians uh, chapter 4, right? We're told to control our anger. But what are we also told to do with that anger after we control it? Right? Be angry and do not sin, but then what's the rest of that verse? Don't let the sun go down on it. So if we're not letting the sun go down on it, what are we doing with it? If we're, okay, I'm, not, I'm angry, but I'm not sinning. So what, what am I going to do with it now? Now I have this anger. What do I do? Yeah, get over it. Let it go, right? Get rid of it. Right? Get it away from you. Get it out. Because if you just hold on to it and you sit with it, then you're not fulfilling the command, right? The sun's going to go down eventually, and it's going to go down on you with your anger, right? And that's not fulfilling the command. So Haman gets angry. He calls his friends and his wife, and he recounts to them. Uh, this is, oh, boy, this is great, right? He recounts to them the glory of his riches, the number of his sons, every instance where the king has magnified him, how he has promoted him above the princes and servants of the king. Even Esther, the queen, invited me, Haman, to a private banquet with her and the king. How great am I? And this Mordecai, he just ruins it all, right? What do you measure worth by? You know, we have some financial people in here that measure the worth of different things. There's a lot of different ways to calculate value, right? You can think of like monetary value, how much something costs, the time that's invested, right? There's a lot of different ways to calculate value. How do you value, what do you value in a person? Mordecai values a lot of very empty things. I mean, not Mordecai, excuse me. Haman values a lot of empty things, right? He values his status. He values his riches. He values the number of sons that he has, right? He values his promotion that he got from the king. And what we know from Ecclesiastes is that all of those things, what do they mean? How much value is in all of those things? I mean, in Ecclesiastes, the preacher says they mean nothing, right? They are wind. They are empty. There's no value there. But that's what Haman sees value in these things. He thinks Mordecai should see value in these things. He thinks Mordecai should respect him because of these things. And I have known people who are like this, right? Do you know how many degrees I have? Do you know what kind of job I do? You couldn't do this. I work the hardest job ever. Uh, my grandfather was a dairy farmer for his entire life. I think it was harder than selling books three months out of the year. But anyway. Um, but that's how people are in our world today, right? There are people who live out in the world that are like this guy that value these inconsequential, empty things. And I like that he calls it out even, right? He says, all of this does not satisfy me, but he gives it the wrong reason. All these things don't satisfy me. Every time I see Mordecai, 
right? What's the problem in Haman's mind? The problem is Mordecai. But what do we know the real problem is? Yeah, I mean, the real problem is his pride. The real problem is his value system, right? You valuing the wrong things. If you were a, I don't know, uh, an, a person with a better, more solid, upstanding kind of character, you probably would have the respect of Mordecai along with everybody else, right? But that's not the type of individual that Haman is. And so what's the solution? His friends and his wife have a great idea, right? Well, if this is your problem, then basically what you need to do is just get rid of this Mordecai guy. So how do you do that? Well, you know, we got room back here. Let's just put up a gallows in the backyard and then go to the king because the king really likes you and just ask to have Mordecai killed, right? Just ask to have him hanged in your backyard. That's pretty normal and it'll be fine, right? 50 cubits high. You know how high that is? 75 feet or so. You know how, how high the White House is? 70 feet, right? So I want to hoist this guy right above my house so everyone can see what I did to the guy who I hated, right? I think it's really interesting that he didn't get this idea at the beginning Right when Mordecai was getting on his nerves. No, this built to this point. At the beginning, what did he say? He said, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to just get rid of Mordecai. I want to wipe out all of the Jews, right? Mordecai's a Jew. He's using that as his reason why he's not going to bow down to me, so I want to get rid of all of them. And now it's gotten to the point where I can't do that anymore. I have to get rid of him now, right? We don't necessarily know where we are in this timeline from when the law is put into effect to when the law is going to actually come to that that day on the 12th month. But we're in between that period, right? Sometime in the year, this is happening. And he says, I can't wait anymore. I just need to get rid of this guy now and then have my vengeance on his people later. And so he has the gallows built. A little bit preemptive, maybe, I would say. And that kind of leaves us hang. Oh, maybe that's poor choice of words. Leaves us hanging. Um, but that gets us to the climax of the book, right? We're about to get to chapter 7, or excuse me, chapter 6, which is one of the largest dramatic ironies in the entire book, right? And so uh, thank you very much for your comments today. We'll pick it up in chapter 6 next week.